0: Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com, and with me today is Dan Amiri. This is the first part of our conversation with Rodrigo Guerra. Rodrigo has a Ph.D. from the International Academy of Philosophy in the Principality of Liechtenstein. He is an ordinary member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, a member of the Theological Commission of the Latin American Council of Bishops, and is the founder of the Center for Advanced Social Research. He is married with three children and lives in Mexico. Before we begin the program, I would like to thank our Patreon sponsors especially Lisa, Chris, and Steven. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on the Patreon button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you for your generosity. We can't do it without you. Welcome, Rodrigo, and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for the patience of the audience that is going to hear uh, peculiar opinions of a Mexican. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you. Before uh, we begin, why don't you give us a little bit of your faith background and, and your biography and how you became involved in working for the church?
1: Well, uh, this is a long story, but uh, in a rich version of the, of the story is uh, I was born in an ordinary Mexican family, but with a, a peculiarity. Uh, uh, my father was agnostic. And my mother was a believer, but she was, at that time when I was born, she was not very close to the church. But little by little, by a lot of uh, events, by a lot of happenings that were happening in our lives, uh, we discovered Jesus and the church. My oldest brothers and sisters are not uh, uh, close to the church, but my, my parents and myself, we began to discover what uh, Jesus, who, who he is and uh, providential opportunity that we were receiving uh, uh, by faith. And uh, when I finished my, my high school, I began to study philosophy in a small university called Popular Autonomous University of the State of Puebla. <laughs> and I received a, a very good education there, mainly based in Gilson and Fabro. It was a, a faculty of philosophy following Thomas Aquinas, mainly following the understanding developed by Cornelio Fabro, who was an important Italian Thomistic philosopher, and Etienne Gilson, who is more or less behind many, many schools of Thomistic philosophy all over the world. And after this, I uh, studied with the Jesuits in the Iberoamericana University. I studied a little bit of Lonergan in that time. And then suddenly, through a common friend, I discovered the existence of the International Academy of Philosophy. For me, it was a, a, an enormous, an enormous gift to discover this place because uh, I wanted to, to write my dissertation on Karol Wojtyła. I applied to the Catholic University of Lublin, but the professors in Lublin recommend me to study in Liechtenstein because the best PhDs, PhD students from Poland were traveling to Liechtenstein to receive the lectures there. So I went to Liechtenstein, and I discovered mainly my main professor, my the one who on, not only educated me, educated me in the field of philosophy, but also in spirituality, in politics, and in many other things. Whose name is Rocco Buttiglione, and Rocco Buttiglione eh, and myself we have been working together for several years eh, in different academic projects. So in 1994, I think. I became a professor and then academic director of the John Paul II Institute in Mexico City, the John Paul II Pontifical Institute. A little bit late, uh, I I was invited by the Conference of Bishops to be in charge of the so-called Social Affairs Ministry of the Conference of Bishops in order to to organize the the social ministry all over the country and the so-called Caritas. Uh, We created an enormous federation of caritas all over the country. And then uh, I was invited by the Latin American Conference of Bishops to participate uh, as an advisor in Catholic Social Doctrine. In the year 2004, uh, the president of the Latin American Conference invited me to create a new department called the Social Observatory. And the first project we received in our hands was to prepare the Fifth General Conference of Latin American Bishops in Aparecida. So from 2004 to 2007, we prepared creating a lot of teams for creating an analytic understanding of what was happening in Latin America and also in the States, by the way, uh, in order to help the bishops to see a a common diagnosis about what was happening I finished my work uh, as, as director of the Social Observatory in 2008, one year after Aparecida. And then uh, with the infrastructure we created in Mexico, we created a, a novelty in the, in the Mexican society, the so-called Center for Advanced Social Research, that all the institutes of scientific research in Mexico, I would say the 90% of the scientific institutes are public are sponsored by the government and controlled ideologically by government. Our institute is, uh, is one of the, is the only one devoted to social sciences and, and liberal arts. And it's, only, it's the only one which is Catholic-based. Catholic based. So uh, in Mexico, this is, I mean, in Mexico, we do not have a tradition of Catholic scientific institutions. So we have been working, now we have 20 full-time professors in our institute. Uh, we offer MAs uh, in different fields, and we uh, give advice to the, our Conference of Bishops, to the Latin American Conference, and to the Holy See in different dicasteries. This is more or less uh, a little bit what, what we do. And, and thank you
2: for that. And we'll get to talk about Pope Francis and some of the things that he's, gonna, he's published and promulgated over the course of his papacy. But as, as I understand, you really can't Understand Pope Francis without first understanding the environment and the culture in which he was raised and also in which he operated for so many years in Argentina. I was hoping, you know, with your work that you were doing in Latin America, that you could kind of give us some perspective. What were what are some of the challenges that that Latin America faces, and what are some of the triumphs or the, the successes, if you will? Uh, what do we celebrate about Latin American culture that might differ from other areas? What what's essential to understanding Seelam and, and Bergoglio and everything that we'll talk about for
1: the rest of the conversation. Well, well there are several questions, but I, I, I will try to answer by just one answer. I would say that one, one thing that helps a lot to understand uh, what kind of man is Bergoglio and also uh, and what kind of church American, Latin American church is, is, is to see that the presence of the bishops in Vatican II, the Catholic Latin American bishops in Vatican II was very silent. There there, there was a joke in that time among the the conciliar fathers saying that the true silence church, the true church of of, of silence was not the Eastern church, was the Latin American church because the Latin American bishops were there but without opening their mouths. So when you read, let's say the diaries, the acts of the Vatican II, you will discover just a few uh, little speeches from the Latin American bishops. The Latin American bishops were truly truly quiet, but I would say that maybe they were also praying, trying to understand, trying to discover uh, what was at the bottom of this renewal in the church. And I would say uh, uh, this is not a, mer- a mere, a mere pious expression, because in 1968, just a few years after Vatican II, the bishops organized the so-called Second Latin American Conference of Bishops in Medellin, Colombia. And there they tried to put all the, the wealth of the Vatican II in the field of Latin America in order to respond to the pastoral challenges of the church of the time. I would say that the trick, the, 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 the novelty that they uh, introduce is the first, let's say, a group of bishops in all the world who were very involved to, to download all the wealth of the Vatican II in a particular challenge were the Latin American bishops. So it was one of the very first experiences of applying Vatican II. Second, the way of applying the Vatican II was not, was not based in a mere deductive approach. Deduction means to have some universal insights, and to try to discover new truths going down to the empirical realm, to the the concrete realm. The Latin American bishops didn't put in practice such a scheme. They discovered that the Vatican II was teaching precisely the opposite. The church, the true church, is the people of God walking in history. So is the people of God in movement, in movement, in motion, So with this approach, they, first of all, heard the voice of the church, the voice of the people of God, trusting in the Holy Spirit that expresses somehow through the people of God, and hearing the people of God, they try to organize all this practical wisdom, illuminating this wisdom with the Vatican II, and offering a new document, the so-called Medellin document. So in order to understand Bergoglio and the Latin American church, we, we need to understand this. What has been the experience of the, of the Latin American church in the last 50 years is the experience of a, a theoretical awareness of a practical movement. It's, it's not mere to develop theology like in Europe, where you can find many very fine scholars devoting many, many hours in a university writing, uh, the enormous books in a wonderful uh, library. No, in Latin America, first the first moment is to live faith with people and discovering in the flesh of the other the presence of the true presence of Jesus Christ. To reflect what God is asking you, and after this, offering this reflection to the discernment of the bishops in order to have a new teaching in order to guide the, the church. So this was the way for applying Vatican II in Latin America. Bergoglio was educated in this approach, was educated. This approach is not new, it's, it's based for instance in Paul VI. In Octogesima Adveniens number four, Paul VI explains this method. You, you have, in order to live truly the experience of faith, you have to live in a small community. Faith is a, it's not a mere individual experience, It's a communitarian experience. You find the true God through the flesh of the other. In uh, pertaining to the flesh of the other, it's an essential dimension of faith. Second, you have to see your surroundings and you have to put your way of understanding what is happening in in your field and to ask the others to help you to understand this reality With the light of the Word of God. And so this method is explained in Octogesima Advenience, number four. And uh, uh, somehow this was put in practice, put at the core of the Second General Conference of Bishops in Medellin. All this, it was very influential, but also because he gave a super important speech to the farmers and uh, indigenous people in Medellin. before the opening of the General Conference. And in that speech, which is very long, the main idea, the main topic is the poor are true sacrament of Christ. Not a metaphorical sacrament, not an analogous sacrament, but a true sacrament of Christ. Because the universal sacrament is the church, and the poor are a moment, a moment, a peculiar moment, for discovering, unveiling the true face of Jesus Christ who is suffering and resurrecting in this very moment among us. So with this approach, Paul VI gave to the Latin American bishops a clue for being brave, for for being prophetical, and Bergoglio somehow inherited all this approach. He uh, was educated, As a Latin American Jesuit in Argentina, he was very close to the theology of people, a a peculiar non-Marxist version of the Latin American liberation theology. And one day he became Pope, and now he's trying to help the universal church through his own experience as Latin American and also as a Latin American Jesuit.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was—I wonder if you could go into explaining a little bit more because there are some stereotypes that English-speaking Catholics have about the Latin American Church. You talk about this theology of the people uh, as opposed to a Marxist version of liberation theology. I I think what a lot of Americans, uh, especially the conservative Catholic media, they look at the Latin American Church as prior to Vatican II having been robust, uh, universally accepted, something that, that the Latin American people had really been faithful to. And then the narrative is that liberation theology came in, deconstructed the Latin American church, and, and now you have threats from secularism, a lot of Pentecostals Perhaps you could go into a little bit of detail about the the sociological history of the Latin American Church over the last fifty or sixty years.
1: Well, uh, first, uh, uh, I, I understand your question and your concerns, and I know that in, late, in the States and in some other parts of the world, there is an enormous stereotype about theology of liberation, and um, we need to clarify this. And maybe a first element in order to clarify this is. Yes, first to discover that the Latin American scenario in the last 50 years has been very difficult because uh, many projects for restructuring our economies have failed. Most of, uh, 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 of those projects were sponsored by uh, different international organizations uh, trying to help economically Latin America and were also promoted by the United States. So this failure for us as Latin Americans has been uh, uh, very, very meaningful because uh, in many occasions, we admire very much the levels of development and wealth that uh, uh, many people enjoy in, in the United States. But when the American advisors from the International Monetary Fund or the American government organized the so-called re programs in Latin America, they failed. They failed. And in many occasions, uh, uh, these uh, helped, help, I, mean, I would say, these helped to discover, at least in the field of the Latin American church, that uh, we need to discover our own path for development. It's not always the best idea to follow the best practices performed, for, for instance, in the States. The best idea is always to discover your own path, because the the American experience grew based in the roots, in the roots of American people. And I will not tell you anything about this because you know better than me the history of the United States. I would say uh, this is what we have to learn. We need to rediscover our origins. We, We need to rediscover our identity in order to discover our own path. And this process somehow was awakened, yeah, put on, on, the, on the table precisely in 1968, when the second Latin American conference was organized. And uh, so the, one of the most uh, s- s- striking elements of this conference in Medellin was to recognize that uh, the poor in Latin America were millions. Second, that the poor have to be understood in the light of the fathers of the church, so the, the second conference of Latin American bishops is closer to the fathers of the church than to a mere scholastic or neo-scholastic approach. It's very clear when you read the document of Medellin, you discover expressions that you can find, for instance, in St. Augustine or in some others than in a systematic manual published in Rome in the 50s. This This is the true root of what was uh, happening in Latin American church. Uh, uh, One way to understand what was happening is to see that the bishops in Latin America rediscovered the fathers of the church, not Karl Marx, but the fathers of the church. In 1968 or 9, Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian priest, in that time he was diocesan, now he's Dominican, Gustavo Gutierrez tried to received all this wealth, all this reflection and tried to to explain using the sociological tools that he had in that moment. And the tools were not, again, were not Marxist, were tools based in the so-called theory of development. The theory of development was a sociological and an economical approach to understand the relation between the, the dependent and independent economies in that time. So for many, Conservative persons in that time, when they hear dependence, independence, structures of based, uh, that use legitimate uh, dependency, they, they, think, they thought this was Marxism, but it was not Marxism, it was theory of development. And in some moments, some other theologians of liberation use Marxist elements. So when Cardinal Ratzinger wrote Libertatis Nuncius, the first instruction on theology of liberation, he focused on one of the main trends in that time about theology of liberation, who was using a lot of Marxist elements in order to discover the meaning of the Holy Scripture and in order to discover the meaning of reality, of social reality in Latin America. This trend was founded by Hugo Asma, not by Gustavo Gutierrez. Hugo Asman, Hugo Asman, Giulio Girardi, some persons who tried to mix Marxism with uh, the gospel. Gustavo Gutierrez was not linked with this trend. He was more linked with theology, of, with uh, theory of development, and with the Fathers of the Church, and with Jacques Maritain, by the way. When you read Theology of Liberation, you can feel a little bit the Maritainian approach in many aspects and um, so at least we have to discover that there are these two trends. There is another trend very problematic in theology of liberation, the the, the guerrilla trend, let's say. There were priests who were not very academic, were not very skilled in intellectual uh, discussions, but were involved in the guerrilla, like Camilo Torres, like M19, a guerrilla group, the Golconda the group. All these groups were not theoretical, were not pastoral, were military, paramilitary. And so this trend was also very problematic. This trend was not touched by the first instruction, but indirectly, but it was the most problematic. The trend that was touched by the first instruction on theology of liberation was Hugo Asman's, let's say, understanding of this. But the theology of liberation developed by Gustavo Gutierrez, by uh, Segundo Galilea, who developed more in his books in the field of spirituality, and by some others, uh, Libanio, for instance, and some others, was more a critical reflection, but being always attentive to the challenge of communion. That's why Gustavo Gutierrez was never, never, ever condemned by the Vatican. Leonardo Boff was condemned by the Vatican many years later. But uh, Gustavo Gutiérrez was not. And uh, I would say the main fruit of all these different trends was the understanding developed by by the Latin American bishops. One of the most important trends of the theology of liberation somehow is the official teaching of the church in Latin America. The, The documents raised in the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth general Latin American conference theology of liberation without a Marxist approach, but recognizing the suffering of our people who needs to discover freedom through liberation. So freedom is somehow the target, and liberation is the process for discovering a new atmosphere for living faith and for living our human rights. In the middle of the teachings of the bishops, the the novelty of the First trends in the theology of liberation, a group of theologians in Argentina developed precisely the so-called theology of people. Theology of people, if you read the basic uh, books uh, written by Lucio Gera, by Rafael Tello, by Juan Carlos Escanone, or by Jorge Bergoglio, you will discover they were just, I mean, I, I don't want to, to minimize the importance of them, but they were commenting Vatican II mainly with some shades. For instance, what is people? What is nation? What is culture? If you see these categories, it's very similar to what Boytiwa made in Poland. In the, in the same time, he was reflecting about what is people, what is nation, what is culture, discovering that as far as a person has a vocation, also nations have a vocation. You need to discover the origins of a nation, in order to discover its own destiny. So this way of understanding people, culture, nation, vocation, was applied, for instance, by John Paul II in his very first visit to the States, saying that the vocation of the United States is uh, to promote freedom and many other things. And these uh, speeches were also given by Pope John Paul II in Poland, in France, in Spain, and in many other countries. I would say the theology of people were doing the same exercise, and yes, they they are sympathetic to the struggles defending the rights of the poor. But they were very very critical to Marxism because the lack the lacks of Marxism in the field of anthropology and in the field of openness to revelation.
2: I think that's an interesting connection uh, to think of the theology of the people and the work that John Paul II was doing uh, as as related, because, you know, I think that sort of breaks down any sort of prejudice we might have against, you know, what's going on in Latin America or or what's um, the fruit of uh, Pope Francis's work. You know, this isn't, this isn't a work that is somehow opposed to the church or inherently marxist this is a this is a church that you said earlier in the conversation is rooted in that incarnation uh, the sacrament of the other i think that's a really rich approach and honestly i think in the united states and america and maybe even western uh, european culture in general there still seems to be a hesitancy to to kind of reexamine or explore Vatican II theology, uh, the theology of the people, the sacrament of the other, and and think about it in new ways, new ways that challenge us to go forward. Um, So I think there's a lot of lessons that we need to learn from the Latin American church to think about how we can apply that going forward. I mean, it's
1: it's definitely a challenge. And um, the, the speech given by Pope Francis to the Congress, the American Congress, somehow put some elements for answering your your concern, for instance, I was very surprised that he mentioned Dorothy Day like a good example of living Catholic faith in solidarity, in true solidarity, not in a mere intellectual solidarity, in an an empirical solidarity with the poor, in the context of the United States, which is different from the context of Latin America or from the Polish context. But uh, I would say the figure of Dorothy Day, maybe it's uh, uh, important in order to understand Pope Francis, because it's a good American experience that Catholic faith should avoid a bourgeois, bourgeois style. <laughs> the, 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 the true faith in Jesus Christ always, always involves to be faithful to the flesh of the other, to the presence, to the bodily presence of the other, because in this bodily presence, You can recognize the true presence of Jesus Christ, as John Paul II says textually in Ecclesia in America. The true presence of Jesus Christ is in the sacrament of of the Eucharist, is in the Word of God, and in everyone, mainly in the poor, where Jesus Christ is really present.
2: I don't want to drag you into our American culture wars, but there still seems to be a hesitancy regarding Vatican II and its legitimacy. And it seems to me, Mike, I don't know if you would agree, but it seems to me that recently there seems to be maybe a, we need to think about Vatican II and maybe not everything was great about Vatican II. And maybe some of those documents are really just pastoral and we don't really need to pay attention to them. (laughs) But it seems like Latin America has really, the, the experience of Latin American churches has it seems to me that they've really dived into the heart of Vatican II and tried to really explore where, where it really makes connections with the lives of people. And I don't know, is there still a challenge in, in your experience today where maybe there's a hesitancy or is that a uniquely American thing?
1: I, I, I cannot say a word about the United States because I have been there several times Missing Disneyland or New York. <laughs> so maybe it's not the yeah. best way to, to discover.
2: It seems to be that there's still like this hesitancy to, to really embrace the teachings. I don't know what the, why that experience is so fundamentally different from Latin America, which really
1: seems Let me try to be- to, to, to respond to, to answer this question in an indirect way. For me, it was very, very, very interesting to see the figure of Monsignor Vigano. Vigano was nuncio in the States, Nobody knows where exactly where he exactly lives right now because he thinks uh, the Pope has certain kind of James Bonds or spies looking for him, and he 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 thinks his life is in risk. <laughs> but Bigano, in his last uh, writings, has said openly that the problem is the Vatican too. So he gave us a, a big gift, an enormous gift in order to have the adequate focus. In certain moments we distract with Amoris Leticia, In certain moments we are distracted by, by the Amazonian Synod. In some other moments we are distracted with the small discussions about particular topics. But digano help us to put the finger on the main topic. The main topic is the Vatican. The Vatican II, yes, is a pastoral council. But with I mean, as far as pastoral work in the church and pastoral reflection in the church is never, never separated with doctrine. The so-called pastoral council, the Vatican II, as, as a pastoral council, is also involves, involves a lot of doctrinal issues that have been clarified by Vatican II. And again, Monsignor Bigano gave us the enormous gift to put the finger in the core. Somehow eh, 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 in a more clear way than some other, let's say conservatives or hyper-traditionalists, saying that the most problematic point of Vatican II is the Nittatis Humane, the document about religious freedom. (laughs) I would say uh, we have to be thankful with Viganò, at least at this point. His understanding about all these issues, is very, very problematic. I would say he's not a traditional thinker. He shows his ignorance more than his traditionalism. Why? I'm not saying this only because I, I, I want to, to avoid or to, or to reject Viganos' uh, 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 theories. No, it's because an historical point. The, the church during the first four centuries, even with Constantine, was respectful about freedom in order to believe in the true God. So religious freedom was an essential, a constitutive dimension of the faith of the very first Christians. And one thing that I'm not going to explain in this moment, but it's very interesting, is that even Constantine protected religious freedom eh, eh, through in, in, in his time. And was Theodosius, the next one, who was, let's say, Constantinian. Who, Theodosius was the one who began to fall in the temptation of, of thinking, if, the, if, the, if Jesus Christ is the true God, we have to officialize this belief without the help of freedom. We have to somehow to impose our faith. The, the guilty was not in, in, in Constantine, it was in Theodosius 379 the year 379, theodosius began to rule. So Vatican II, in many ways, in many aspects, in many topics, returned to the basics, Sicut servus ad fontes, like a lamb or like, like, like a small animal going to the, to the fluth in order to, to, to drink pure water. So the Vatican II purified liturgy and many other aspects in the life of the Church and following the experience of the early Christians. And somehow Viganò tries to recover not this element, but the problematic element that appeared in the 4th century, in the last years of the 4th century, with Theodosius. And this problematic element is precisely if freedom is, a, is an, an essential element for believing or not. So I would say, returning to the first point, Somehow the experience with this disc- and the discussions around and help, I would say, will help to understand how to rediscover the Vatican II in the States and in many other places in the world. Vatican II is an enormous, an enormous uh, a treasure because it's not important by itself. It's like, a, it's like a sign when you point with your finger to so- somewhere, you n- need to see to the point, uh, to the target, not to keep your eyes, your sight in, in, in the finger, but for following the direction. And the Vatican II is pointing towards Jesus Christ and the early Christians. The simplicity of the early Christians. Maybe if you, if you want the, the naiveness of the early Christians, but I would prefer much more the naiveness of the early Christians than the uh, erudition of a, a peculiar neo-scholastic approach to faith that involves a very grown reading about modernity and a very grown reading about medieval times. Medieval times are the golden age, and modernity is a, a, a process of uh, decadence uh, uh, towards atheism and secularism and relativism. Come on, this is not the reading of, the, of history that you can discover in St. Augustine, not even in Ratzinger, not even in Ratzinger, who is a very big teacher in the field of theology and philosophy of history. I would say, when we clarify our sight and we discover the life of the true early Christians, we fall in love with Vatican II. And, and we understand how to rediscover, not only to rediscover theoretical things, how to, how to restart my own life. Following Jesus Christ as a person, as a living person, not as a mere concept.
0: It's funny that you mentioned uh, religious freedom in the early church because a few months ago we actually we published a piece at Where Peter Is by Henry Carlson on that very topic, and he referred back. Yeah, he referred back to all these early church sources praising and and calling for uh, religious liberty, and it's interesting because or what's strange about the traditionalists today is they believe that there's some form of maybe stare decisis. I don't know if you have that concept in, uh, in Mexico, but it's a judicial principle that, that the judge will follow the precedent. And they, they apply 18th century, 16th century magisterial statements, and they, they judge current or more recent magisterial statements against, uh, against what immediately preceded it. I just want to uh, change a little bit of subject because this is something that's always, um, whenever I I talk to a Latin American Catholic about Pope Francis, I'm always curious to see because being an American, I grew up with John Paul II as Pope and then Pope Benedict and and now Francis. And I, I don't know what it is like to experience having someone from your part of the world, whose native tongue is your native tongue, and in your case, someone who you actually knew yeah. and were fond of. We can get back a little bit to to and, and things that preceded Pope Francis's papacy, but I'm, I'm curious what you thought, leading into the conclave, what you felt when you saw him Oh, yeah. walk out onto the loggia, and what that meant to you at the time about the direction of where the church might be going.
1: Yeah, well, I have to tell you a little personal story. Uh, I met Bergoglio before, before he became Pope. Oh, uh, in a very funny way, uh, in the year 2005, I published a little book called Catholics and Politics. And uh, it was published by The Selam by Selam. And like uh, one year later, maybe it was in 2006, I went to Buenos Aires. I visited one of these marvelous libraries they have in, in Buenos Aires. And suddenly I discovered a book. I opened it, and I began to read it, and I said, "Oh, this is good. Very good. Oh my God, it's my book! <laughs> it was my book with a different cover. With, with my name and everything. But it was a, another edition. It, it published in an unknown uh, publishing house. Uh, for me, it, Agape. It's called Agape. And, and, and so, uh, so I, 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 I checked. Someone stole my book. Someone has to publish my book without my, 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 my permission. And I discovered that, that book, the book has a foreword. A foreword. Written by the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. So I went immediately to talk with the president of CELAM and I told him, someone stole my book. The late American Conference of Bishops, we we I mean, as, as far as I mean, we we, we need to, to denounce this because <laughs> someone stole, and the president of the bishops told me, no, 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 all the bishops have the right to publish everything we we, we publish at CELAM. So as far as your book is, is in Selam, the Archbishop of Buenos Aires was, had, had the right. Well, but at least, please uh, give me some information. No, no, nobody knows about this. And Bergoglio is never going to respect any, any good advice about <laughs> sending news or notices or a notification about the publication of, of the book. So when I met him in Aparecida, I told him, oh, come on. Uh, you published my book without my permission. So it was very funny. Many years later, when he became Pope, when, when, he, when I saw the, the, the moment when he was appointed as a pope, for me it was shocking, absolutely shocking, because in that time I was I had a lot of interviews, for instance, with CNN and, and a very long interview with CNN, and I, I, I was saying my all, all my different scenarios, if this group predominates over this other. Uh, the candidates are Scola, uh, um, Ouellette, and these But I never mentioned Latin American. I never mentioned Bergoglio. When I heard Bergoglio, Cardinal and Bergoglio, oh, my God, <laughs> I immediately thought, maybe there is another Bergoglio in Italy or somewhere. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Bergoglio was Bergoglio. And suddenly I, I became so happy, so joyful because one of, I felt immediately, one of us is in the sea of Peter. One of us, one of our people, one who has looked the the same streets I I have been watching for years. The the, the, one who has, uh, who has smelled, who who has uh, saw with his own eyes, the, the many faces of the poor in Latin America. One of us, one, one who sings with our souls, one who prays with our liturgy of the hours in Spanish. <laughs> so, so for me, it was a, a moment of joy, enormous joy. And some months later, I met him in the Vatican. And I told him, do you remember all that book? And, and he told, I, I, I told him, you have to pay me a little bit because uh, you, 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 you were earning some money with my book. And the Pope answered me, no, it's on the contrary. It's on the contrary, because now your book is a bestseller because it has the foreword written by a Pope. So now you have to pay me <laughs> some royalties. <laughs> so Bergoglio is like this. He's always joking. He's always hopeful. He's young. When you meet him, you discover someone young. This, is, this experience, someone who looks to your eyes as if you were the only one person in the world. And someone with, with with a youthful youthful spirit. So, for me, Pope Francis, yes, it's a miracle, uh, an enormous gift for for me as a Mexican, um, and I would say it's an enormous gift for the universal church.
2: If you would uh, give us a little background into your work leading up to uh, a parasita. I think that conference that meeting is still underestimated by people in the United States. And I think there's a lot of insights we can glean into Pope Francis' own approach to things. But give us a little perspective on, on your work that you did leading up to the, to the meeting, and then how, how would you describe the general trajectory of that meeting? What, what should we glean and take away uh, as it applies to Pope Francis?
1: Yeah, I, I would say Aparecida uh, is an enormous happening. It's, it's not a mere, it's not a document, based in a particular concrete scenario of 2007. It's like Vatican II. The kind of reflection Aparecida gives us is a reflection for many years. It's a long view about the church, not only in 2007, but maybe in the next 30 years. So I would say Aparecida has this peculiar epistemological status. It means it has this peculiar... Approach is not talking about the, 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 the news in the newspaper. Is talking about the, 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 the mega trends that we are living in the region. So I would mention maybe Pope Francis' understanding of Aparecida. He says Evangelii Gaudium is a, a bad version of Aparecida. Aparecida is the good one. <laughs> 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 Evangelii Audium was a good effort in order to help. The rest of the church understand Aparecida. <laughs> he says these kind of expressions. Uh, so what is the core of Aparecida? The core of Aparecida is put in the number 11 and 12 of the document. I, would, I suggest you very much to read the number 11 and 12. If you grasp the core of these two numbers, you will understand the whole document, or at least you will have the very essence of the document. What says the number 11 and the number 12 of Aparecida? It says that we need to stop with moralism. Conservative or progressive moralism is a reduction of the essence of faith into ethics. We have to stop with this because the Christian happening is a person, not a value. The kerigma, so the the very first uh, announcement, the very first... Announcement of the gospel is not natural law. <laughs> it's Jesus Christ rising. So, so, so this, is very, this is very important. It's very simple, but it's very important. We, we are not witnesses of a value, of a concept. We are witnesses of a resurrected person. Wow! So this is the, the core of the eleven and 12th. And then there are some consequences. We have to avoid. We have to avoid to complain all the time about the lacks of the church and the crisis. And no, 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 no. We have to rediscover the joy of being Christian, the joy of being missionaries, the, this, the, the missionary disciples, the joy of touching Christ, not in a mere metaphorical way, but in a, a true empirical way in the flesh of the other. We have to rediscover the, the importance of community in order to, discover, to rediscover what, is, what church really is. Because if we do not belong to a community, we do not understand what church is, even though we maybe I have studied a lot of theology. I would say uh, Aparecida somehow put the finger on the topic of discipleship, of mission, but based in a communion. I, 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 I always think that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, David Schindler and all these guys in the JP2 in Washington are, are sponsored the so-called Communio magazine. And there are some Communio groups for studying the Communio magazine in different parts of the world. But in many occasions, the, these are mere intellectual approach, mere conceptual approach to different shades and analytic understanding of theology, but not to belong to belong to the flesh of the other. This is very different. To belong is to be responsible. I mean, to be friend is to take care of the destiny of the other. This is to be a friend. Friendship is to take care of the destiny of the other in an empirical way. When the other needs money, I'm going to be the first to give money to to my friend who is needed. Not in a metaphorical sense, but in an empirical sense. Here, there are 1000 bucks for you because you are needed, because you don't have job, because you don't have food. So when you discover living church through these experiences, you discover church in a very different way than in a mere mere conceptual approach. So I would say uh, this is what Aparecida helps us to see. There there are many topics in Aparecida, but I would say missionary discipleship lived lived from the ground of a communion of a concrete community, is the most important thing.
0: This concludes Part 1 of our conversation with Rodrigo Guerra. Please join us in the upcoming days for Part 2 when we discuss Pope Francis, his intellectual life, and his impact on the Church. Until next time, God bless and take care.